0: Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Ken Capel, We're going to talk about the game-changing year for hockey of 1990-91, that season, that year of cards, all those amazing new and exciting new licensees that the uh, player associations and uh, leagues and teams granted, which got uh, me extra deep into hockey, got uh, Ken extra deep into hockey. So thanks sponsors, Top Panini and Everdeck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, as well as Comc, and Beckett Media, Beckett Gradient, Beckett Authentication. Most of them, probably, maybe all of them, uh, maybe not, have, have done hockey of sorts. A- at least Panini Panini and the predecessors, maybe. maybe the predecessors. Yeah. yeah, I think they all did, yeah. And Upper Deck, for sure, they're going strong now. So, welcome, Ken. You've been on before. You mentioned, we just got a little back and forth about how momentous the 1991 season was for hockey, Pivotal game changing what's your perspective on that you were sharing a story that's kind of indirectly what got you back into the hobby so yeah <laughs> thank,
1: thank you me. for having me what actually happened with me was i had been collecting hockey cards but i had stopped after 8182 cuz tops stopped making them at that point And i lived in the state so i couldn't get the OPG. and i had gotten out of baseball cards around 84 85 went to college and met my wife and got married in between that time then and we got married in 1990 and then of my best friend and i who was the my best man at my wedding we were chatting and he started, he started showing me, he says, didn't you go to college with these guys? Because I went to Bowling Green and BGSU and, and I watched Rob Blake and Nelson Emerson and Paul Isebart play the previous four years. And they all went on to the NHL. And of course, Rob Blake wound up being a, a Hall of Famer. And all of a sudden he's showing me these cards, this 1991 upper deck rookie card of Rob Blake. And then he showed me a ninety ninety one score of Nelson Emerson in his BGSU jersey. And I was blown away. I had never seen cards like this, just the the designs. And these are my players that I actually had a connection to that I saw walking around campus that I watched play for four years. And I was hooked at that point. It was just like, I got to start my PC on this. And it's funny because now looking back, those were the three that I started this entire journey with and never looked back.
0: Okay. So it's the fall of 1990. And uh, another thing came uh, on the scene, which was the Beckett Hockey Magazine. And then you uh, were aware of OPG, obviously, even at that point. And they actually just quit for a few years and then jumped back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the 80s were mainly OPG with tops most of the years. And then all of a sudden, 1990, for some reason, hockey decided to expand the category. Football had done that. Basketball was uh, coming on. And uh, like I said, were you freaked out that, that, that there was score and pro set and upper deck? Or, or were, you, were you familiar with them at, at all from baseball with upper deck or uh, score with baseball but or pro set with football?
1: A little bit with the score baseball, because I was a Steve Garvey collector and the score was the only set in 1988 that produced a card of him. So I knew and that's when I started hearing around some things like, oh, wow, there's other card companies out there. But then, like I said, I was I I get handed this upper deck and I had never heard of upper deck. I didn't know about the Ken Griffey number one the year before at this point, because I had been totally out of it and get married and, and start my life with my new bride. And then I start seeing these cards and I'm looking at them on that hologram and those photos. And it was on a totally different type of cardboard that I had never seen before with tops or OPG. And then when you look at that score set, just how even today, just how when you line it up, when you put a bunch of them together, it looks like the the ice rink with the blue lines and the red lines and then the glossiness of Premiere. It's just how they just looked so different and felt different. And and it was just like, I wasn't ready for it, but I was so thankful when when Beckett started coming out with it because I had no idea these were even worth anything. I was always thinking, oh, they're not worth much of anything. And then I was able, it was so cool to be able to go in and look down through the columns and say, oh, there's my my Rob Blake scorecard and there's my Nelson Emerson card. So it really bridged everything together for me perfectly.
0: Do you feel like that back in that time that Upper Deck pressed a marketing advantage or a aesthetic advantage or did you figure that out on your own?
1: I figured it out really quick on my own. When, I, when you compare the cards together, and I'm one of those people that like to have the cards in my hands, and I like to spread them out and take a look at them, either in a, back then in the plastic sheets and the binders. And when you see them side by side, they just jumped out, and they were just a totally different feel. And then you get that hologram on the back, and then, oh my gosh, there's a picture on the front and a picture on the back? How did, how did that happen? I was blown away with that.
0: Were you impressed by Pro Set by having such a huge set? Was that appealing to you back at the time? Because, I th- again, I think this was important for the establishment of hockey as a major sport in North America, especially in Canada, but certainly in, in the United States as well, that it was a comprehensive almost a living set. They brought that from football to hockey. Was that appealing to you?
1: Yeah, that definitely was because here you had not only some of those guys, like Nelson Emerson, as an example, probably wouldn't have had, he didn't have a card in upper deck because he wasn't big enough at that point. But because pro set and score were so big, they were able to go into what I consider the prospects or the low level prospects at the time, or even the third and fourth liners that in today's companies, very few sets actually put your third and fourth hockey liners on there, unless they're a big name. Game. where with that, you could go through and get a complete team set, which back then, and I can think of the kids, when I used to go to Islander games in New York, they they used to go there with their cards, their Brian they their Brent Sutter pro set cards or scorecards, and I'd see the players signing them. And I was like, that's a pretty good idea. I never thought of that.
0: Yeah, it just seems like the... The, the, the big sets really catered to autograph collectors, as you said. It legitimized that all NHL players are highly skilled. <laughs> if you get very close to the ice, you can see that, and uh, you could track with that. Completing sets, I think, when you look back now, uh, and I look back at the old price guides, the wax was not real expensive, but putting together a set, just the labor to put together uh, hundreds of cards in a set for 10 or 15 bucks, you think, how is anybody making any money on that? And yet we can compare back to the cheese and the tops from the year before or the few years before. Most of those years are uh, short sets, easy to complete, except for the mid 80s, a little bit tougher, but toward the late 80s. Yeah.
1: What I think 1991 also brought up, which is not only were they the big sets, like Score and Pro Set, but then Upper Deck doing a Series 1 and a Series 2. And which you hadn't seen that before, it was a one release and done. It was one day and done. And then you get, like, Score even had an update set to their regular set, which they had the rookies and the traded players in there. And that was one of the first ones to do that. And then you look at OPG had their, Topps OPG had their sets coming out, but then they came out with OPG Premier which that was also that Yager card, which still today is just one of the most beautiful cards I've seen. And just him in action with hair flowing and everything. And that was a great card. And it's held its value over the years, even though it was mass produced, but it was so much less produced than the regular tops or regular OPG versions that Yager, I don't even think had a card in either of those.
0: Yeah, maybe even lower production than any of the other sets. It probably was the premium uh, brand as as befits the name as mm-hmm. being a premium or premier uh, Set, but nowadays I don't think any of them are that tough. With the advent of grading, there's probably a few cards you could get graded. And but would you say that's in the category of junk wax? Some of those sets,
1: some of those sets, yes. I go to shows all the time, and I still see uh, Score complete sets for five, six, seven dollars for the set. And the Brodeur card, who Score was smart, they're the only ones that put Martin Brodeur in their set, and it's amazing. And, And to this day, if I see a Score set laying around or a Score box, I pick it up. To get the the Brodeur and the Yager and the Lindros out of it. Because Lindros was another one. He was a huge game changer because he was exclusive to score at that time. And that was the hot card. And I I bet you it was one of the hot cards in Beckett at that time. Well, it really
0: was. We really, yeah. I mean, that was amazing. But I mean, he, do you think Eric Lindros was overhyped as much as just things didn't break for him? He had some injuries. He, He was physically gifted. But he had some concussions and his teams didn't do that. I don't know if he was expected to carry, but hockey's a tricky sport. What do you, what do you think happened there? Because everything was riding on air. He was the score marketing plan.
1: Him, The size, the charisma, the scoring touch, the way he was on his skates. Uh, I just think that there was so much. When you're labeled the next Gretzky. While Gretzky is still in your prime, that's a tough one. And you look at Lindos' career, for the amount of games that he played, the amount of points he scored, yeah, he definitely was a Hall of Famer over a point a game. I just think that the injuries caught up with him, but then also the entire, I'm not going to play for the team that I got drafted for. And I think that kind of hurt him in the end. And then the trade to Philly, and then he was just brought in as the savior of hockey. And not only that, but in Philly, which is not an easy place to play. And I've been to games in Philadelphia and it's they're tough. <laughs> so I think that there was a lot of things weighing against him. But I think at the same point, I think for what he had and what he did with what he had around him was pretty good. If you put him on a team nowadays with a good center or a good winger, like they have up in Edmonton now, he would have probably excel, but he didn't have protection because he was the team's protection. He was the guy that would go out and stick up for his teammates. And that was hard when you're the also the best scorer, best player on your team.
0: The other thing that he did that was, I think, of interest is that Gretzky had to recently moved to LA, to the Kings. And basically, it established hockey as more than a Canadian sport, more than an Olympic sport, but the great history and legacy of the NHL. But by Lindros coming along, he basically said there's more than Gretzky and Lemieux. And Patrick Waugh. So he was the first kind of anticipatory rookie Mm -hmm. in hockey because in the 80s, the cards came out after the player had already hit for, for the most part. So there wasn't speculation. Lindros, a lot of people speculated on.
1: Yeah. thus the next one, as they referred to him as. But yeah. And then he just, I think he came at the most opportune time in the hobby because right at that point, there was that explosion that we've talked about in 1991 with all the different licensing and score wanting to get in on the ground floor. They, they see this as they're looking at this can't miss yeah. next great one. Let's we'll lock him up to an exclusive contract, which was great for the card itself. That I think that's an iconic card of him in his juniors uniform and not Philadelphia or a Quebec or a Jersey, but just to have that card out there that everybody was able to chase. And that was actually another reason why I love that year so much because it was like, it was different. There was that chase element. You had all the paraphernalia, all the literature that was out there with Lindros's face on it, which just he, drove everything.
0: I think he was intended to be Scores' answer to the upper deck Ken Griffey Jr. from the year yeah. before, that the one anchor player that's going drive to the, drive the set. It, it just didn't happen. And yet... Yeah. Our hockey magazine did really well. The competition of all these other licensees coming. You haven't mentioned Bowman. Was there any fanfare with that? Because Bowman now is completely different from Bowman then, but it got Bowman back in the game in hockey.
1: Yeah, it did. It did get Bowman in, and it was one of those things where I think the Bowman kind of missed their opportunity in the fact that, that name back then was a big name, but the cards itself were very uh, mass-produced, almost. I define Bowman as that junk wax because there there wasn't a lot of buildup in it. There wasn't really a lot of the, the rookies. They just recycled, in my opinion, the, the same veteran players and didn't really give the, the young kids the, the good luck, like the Brodeurs, the Lindros, or the Blakes, or all the other rookies. I'm not even mentioning Eddie Belfort or Mark Recchi or any of those, na- all those Hall of Famers. You look, go back and you look at that ninety ninety one set.
0: It's a Half the set are rookies because they hadn't had cards before. They were some were legit rookies and some were carryover rookies. But it was, yeah. Most of the the sports card insight for other sports, not just hockey, is that most of the successes of the card companies over the years were not when they went to a lower quality product, but where they went to a higher quality product and dazzled collectors to get the attention. So Bowman just didn't quite have enough. And but it made OPC look like they were they were the standard. And then by the time you get into the nineties, they, they really weren't anymore.
1: No, no. And actually that was one of the last years they did an OPG set because then they, they changed it to another name. OPG. It tops OPG something out. I don't remember what it was called, but they, they stopped doing it regular. And I will say this about Bowman. They got the idea right in the 92, 93 season when they, cut back on the production. They put those specific, those gold foil chase cards, which were new at that point. If they would have done that in the first year rather than the third year, I think Bowman hockey would have taken off and, and been around for quite a while. It flared out after a couple of years.
0: My last comment here, again is that something happened at Topps in 92, approximately, uh, 91, 92, where somebody came in and turned around. I don't know if it was a brand manager, but somebody came request because baseball did the same thing. Football did the same thing. There was a pivot between 91 and 92, where Bowman got a brand identity that was more enduring than what they had done with the 90-91 Bowman uh, hockey. So great sets. Just to finish off here, thanks Ken. All those sets are very affordable and it gives you a a very deep slice of what was going on in hockey in that year. And uh, like I said, it was the inaugural issue of Beckett Hockey Monthly. So uh, a lot of fun going to the hockey games and calling it a business expense. (laughs) So thanks, Ken Capel. Thanks listeners. I'll be back again tomorrow with another episode and um, especially you hockey collectors uh, hang in there. So thanks. And so long.